Well, have any of you seen the movie or read the book Ender's Game in here? Okay, okay. Um, well, if, if you didn't, I'm about to ru- ruin it all for you. But I, I read this book last year and really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's about a boy named Ender, and he lives um, on Earth, and he has been born and raised to fight these alien invaders that are known as the buggers because they sort of look like insects. Um, so every little girl's like worst nightmare. And uh, so he is trained and Toward the end of his training, um, there's a lot of computer simulated battles, like playing like a video game. And he has this final battle that he has to to pass and win in order to become like the commander and go out and fight the buggers that are threatening to destroy the earth. And so he fights the battle, he wins against incredible odds, only to find out it was not a computer simulation. It was the real battle. And you're just, you're stunned. Um, and then Ender ends up feeling like all guilty about it. And anyway, it's kind of crazy. And I was just thinking about how different his mission was than Christ's mission. How different he as sort of the, the savior was than our savior. Ender's off, often kept in the dark. Um, the adults don't tell him the full story. They sort of leave, leave him to fend for himself. He doesn't have a clear idea of who he is. And when he fights the ultimate battle, he doesn't even really know what he's doing. Compared to Christ, who clearly knows who he is, what his purpose is. Um, He's been in on all the planning. And um, we get to see a glimpse of that today, his mission, uh, what he has come to do. You know, the Bible, um, we've heard this many times, but the Bible is really just one story. And it has several great themes. And one of the great themes of the Bible is that man is totally unable to save himself, his great need that man has. And then secondly, God's way of salvation that he's provided through Christ. We see that all the way through beginning in Genesis and all the way through the pages of the Bible. Um, So we, we definitely get to see both of those themes on display today in our passage. And we're gonna look at our passage today and in three parts. Um, First is a great need, verses one through 15. Second, a great gift in 16 through 21. And then third, humility and exaltation. So let's just quickly recap what we've seen so far in John. We had the wonderful prologue where John is stating that he is going to try to prove that Jesus is God so that we may believe and have life. We saw Jesus baptized and proclaimed by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God. And as a result of that, he begins to gather a few disciples. Next, we saw Jesus turn water into wine at Cana and then clean out the temple in Jerusalem at Passover. And today we're going to get to see this interesting personal encounter with uh, Nicodemus and him reveal um, the gospel and his mission and why he's been sent. So let's dig in. We're first going to look at... um, a great need, verses one through 15. So open your Bibles to John three, if you haven't already, and read along as I read here. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, who is this person? Well, first of all, it tells us that he is a Pharisee. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear Pharisee, I immediately just think negative thoughts um, about the Pharisees. Um, And of course, Jesus takes them to task many times in his ministry. But we have to kind of remember, it's good to remember that these Pharisees were highly respected uh, Jewish men at that time. They were the religious conservatives of their day. They uh, were very serious about the scriptures, very serious about the law, uh, serious about obedience. Those are all good things, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about them later. The second thing we learn is the man's name, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Greek name that means one who conquers the people. That's a really good name. You know, back in that day, they, they gave names that really meant something, not just because they were cute, you know, like I wanted to name one of my sons Hunter because I thought it sounded really good with Hunter Hedge, you know, Hunter Hedgepath would be so cool. But I don't have a Hunter, so I was overruled on that. Um, so a Greek name, why did this Jew have a Greek name? Well, uh, some the upper class, this tells us a little bit more about him too. The upper class and wealthier Jewish people at this time would have had a Greek education as well as their, their Jewish education. And many of them had both names, a Greek name and a Jewish name. And here he is uh, chosen to go by his Greek name. Um, He's also um, a scholar and a teacher of Israel. Uh, Jesus calls him that in verse 10. Um, It also tells us in uh, those opening verses that he is one of the elite 70 men that were known as the Sanhedrin. He was a ruler or a politician Um, So here we have a man who really has everything going for him. Um, He's a religious leader, a scholar, a politician, all rolled into one. He's got a very impressive resume. He's most certainly not a down and outer. And if we were going to pick somebody to represent us as the best that human beings can be, we would want him. He he has everything going for him. Um, When does he come? He comes at night, right? And for my literary friends out there, you know, we think, oh, what does that mean? You know, is, he's in the darkness and he's being secretive. And, um, you know, it's very possible that, you know, that's, that was my first thought. But then it's also very possible that he came for very practical reasons at night. Um, by this time, Jesus is having crowds flock around him during the day. 
And it may have been hard to get an audience with Jesus during the day with all these crowds around him. So it may have just been a very practical reason that he came at night and nothing more to it than that. Um, So Nicodemus first says to Jesus, Rabbi, which is a term of respect, means teacher. And he says, we know, speaking in the plural there, he's probably speaking for his fellow Pharisees or Sanhedrin. And he says, basically, we know know three things. We know you're a teacher. We know that you do signs that authenticate you as being from God. And implied is that we, we should listen to you. You're someone of importance that we should listen to. Now, Jesus' response in verse three really seems to come out of left field, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, what? Did Nicodemus ask him a question? I don't think so, but Jesus, like, what are you talking about? Um, I think the answer for this lies first in our, our previous chapter, chapter two, verses 24 and 25, says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Um, You know, last year, Ronnie, this past year, I think earlier this year, Ronnie Stevens preached here one day, and he preached about the rich young ruler, and Jesus does a very similar thing to him. He doesn't seem to answer at all the question that the rich young ruler puts to him, but instead he goes right to the heart. He's reading his thoughts and his mind, and he goes right in to deal with a real issue. He just cuts through everything else. Um, Jesus uses the words, truly, truly. Some of your versions may say, verily, verily. Um, it means, I tell you the truth. And when you see those words, just know that they're usually being used to point out some misunderstanding that the hearer is having. It's like clarification. And then it also introduces a new thought that's going to take the teaching on to the next step. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. The Greek word here for again is A-N, long O, T-H-E-N. It almost looks like another, but it ends with an N. And it can mean just to do something again, repeat an act, but it has, it has more of a meaning than that. It means to repeat from the original source or from, from above. And Jesus tells him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See here doesn't mean just to perceive with your eyes to see something, but also with, to experience it with your mind and just your experience. And uh, kingdom of God is also you know, synonymous with eternal life. So Jesus basically is saying, you're not in the kingdom, Nicodemus. I know you think you're in the kingdom of God, but you're, you're, not, you're not there. It would be quite shocking. Well, with echoes from the last chapter where Jesus talks about destroying the temple and raising it again in three days or building it again in three days, and he was taken quite literally, it seems that Nicodemus says the same thing here. Um, Quite literally, he says, how can a grown man re-enter his mother's uterus? You know, he's not getting, he's taking it literally. I actually, I can relate to being very literal and taking things very literally. I've been fooled so many times because I'm gullible like that. Um, Then Jesus goes on and talks about uh, being born of the water and spirit. And again, he uses these words, truly, truly. Now, did any of you talk about this water idea in your groups? 
did I don't think it came up in, in our group, but uh, there are a lot of interpretations about what this water means. Um, and it almost seems that I have quite a few commentaries that I use, and everybody kind of has these different ideas, but these are some different interpretations. I'm just, I'm going to tell you some of these. Um, first of all, there's a thought that water is um, physical birth. It's referring to physical birth. This is not a very likely explanation because water isn't used this way in other parts of scripture. Um, and of course, water for physical birth, because there's water, you know, in, amniotic fluid around the baby and a woman's water breaks. And also it's just self-evident. Well, of course you've got to be born again or you've got to be born first physically before you can be born a second time. So that's not a great interpretation, but some people have interpreted it that way. Second, uh, water as baptism. Um, and there, you know, some people take, take these verses out and say, you have to be baptized to be saved. And that's what he's talking about. Well, baptism is just an outward sign of what's already happened inside. It's not the agent of that change inside. It's just a picture of what's already, already happened. Um, it's also um, not great theology because of verses that talk about God looking on the heart. And I'm gonna give you a few verses and don't have time to read these, but I can give you these to jot down. First Samuel 16, 7. Romans 2, 28 and 29, Galatians 2, 15 and 16, and Galatians 5, 1 through 6. A third interpretation is that water and spirit should both be taken symbolically. Water for cleansing or repentance and spirit for power or regeneration. And the verses that we had to look up in our lesson from Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, um, Ezekiel is talking about water. God is saying, I will, I will cleanse you with water. The fourth interpretation is water as the spirit. Uh, next week, when Sue teaches, she's gonna be talking about the uh, encounter with the woman at Samaria. And Jesus talks about giving her living water, which he's talking about the spirit. That's John 4, 14. Uh, it's used again in John seven thirty seven and 38. And then there's one that I'll read to you from Isaiah 44. Get to it here. Isaiah 44, verse three. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So there's some parallel structure where he talks about pouring water and then pouring his spirit. So it's, it's compared there. If this is so, then... What Jesus is saying is a repetition of ideas for emphasis. Like you must be born of water, not and the spirit, but even the spirit. And then the fifth um, interpretation, and this is a strong one, is that water is scripture. Um, Ephesians 5.26 is a great verse for this. Let me read that to you. I think I have it. Um, all right, I'm almost there. No, I'm not. Okay, sorry. I remember last year saying Galatians, Ephesians, General Electric Power Company, and Edie Fleming knew what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> okay, here it is. I'm sorry I didn't have that marked. I ran out of little post-it things. I'm gonna start in 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Here are a few other verses. 
um, that you can mark down for later that talk about and equate water with scripture. John 15, 3, James 1, 18, Romans 10, 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, and 1 Peter 1, 23. And if you don't get all those, you can see me later, I'll give them to you. Um, all these interpretations are really fun to ponder about and think about, but when we boil all of it down, what I think what we really see Jesus saying here is that this new birth idea is all of God and it's a spiritual thing. God's the source of our physical birth. Um, we certainly had nothing to do with that one. And God's the source of the spiritual birth. That, that one really happens without us wanting it to happen too. Um, we don't have anything to do with it. Um, Jesus compares the spirit with the wind and he says it goes wherever it wants. And in our study, she pointed out that wind and spirit, it's the same word. You can see it, you can hear it. You can't see it, but you can see the effects of it. You can hear it, but it can't be controlled. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, when he was, uh, I was reading what he had to say on this, he, he was of the opinion that water is the word. And he said that faith is like the ovum or the egg that's planted in the heart by God and believers. And that the word is like the sperm that fertilizes the egg. And when they meet, a new spiritual being comes, happens. It's all God's work. I, I love that picture. Um, in verses nine through 12, we see Nicodemus' final statement, how can this be? <clears throat> and Jesus gently rebukes him and says, you're a teacher, you're very smart. How can you not understand these things? I mean, we see that fishermen like Peter and Andrew, that maybe not, maybe they weren't very educated, they, they seem to get it. And he's, yet Nicodemus, this great teacher is not, not getting it. And then to further clarify what he's talking about, he gives Nicodemus this wonderful sign from Numbers about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. Um, and this, clearly he's foretelling his death um, and, ha and the manner of his death here and how he will be lifted up. Um, just some parallels, I hope you saw these same things, but first, death is threatened in both cases because of people's sin. Second, God in both cases is the provider of the solution. The men cannot save themselves. Third, something or someone is lifted up for public view. And fourth, people need only look with belief to the one being lifted up to be healed. Now we've zoomed in on a bunch of little details in this portion, but let's kind of zoom out now and see what this really all means. We have a sharp, educated, earnest, religious, very respected man coming to Jesus, he probably feels pretty confident and good about himself. I mean, in terms of human achievement, A plus. Um, in terms of entering the kingdom, he thinks he has his passport and his bags are packed and he's in it, he's going, you know, he's, he's there. Um, he was a good Jewish boy, kept all the laws. And uh, the Pharisees had rules for everything so that you would keep the original rules, you know, rules to keep the rules. I read that a woman was not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and wanna pluck it out and that would be work. 
<laughs> that is crazy. Um, they had totally externalized religion. It was a very outward business. They were very righteous on the outside, but it wasn't good enough and they could not save themselves. So Jesus throws him this curveball and says, no, buddy, this is not a human achievement kind of thing. This is not an outward keep all the rules kind of thing. It's an inside thing. And furthermore, it's something you have no control over. You've got to be reborn spiritually to experience the kingdom. So let's apply this. What does this mean for us? Are you, like Nicodemus, trusting in your accomplishments or your righteous deeds or your education um, to enter the kingdom? If not, if, or if you are, stop and look to the cross. Um, maybe you are interested in Christ, um, but you think you need to do some things first. You need to become a better person and you're just not ready to, you know, become a Christian yet. Um, you don't have to do anything except look to the cross. Um, maybe you have looked to the cross in faith, but you're now trying to work your way. You know, you're working it. You're working that salvation and you've got some man-made rules and uh, you've added them to your life and you think other people should be doing the same kind of things that you are. No, everything was paid for for you at the cross. Um, there's nothing to add. Um, or maybe you compare yourself um, as a righteous person to lost people and think that you're better because of the righteous life you lead. But it's not your doing. Your rebirth is not your doing. Um, there's nothing to be puffed up about. Okay, let's move on uh, to a great gift. We have a great need and now we have a great gift. And I'm gonna read, this next part will be faster, I promise. Um, in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his words have been carried out in God. So first we see that the subject here, um, who, is, who is doing the action is, is God. Um, the holy, infinite creator of, of the universe so loved um, to such a great degree and in the way that he gave. This is how he showed his great love, that he gave the most awesome gift. Um, he gave his son, his, I, I had always grown up thinking it's his one and only son, like his only son. But I love that she pointed out that this means unique one-of-a-kind son. He gave the very best that he could give. In essence, he gave himself, um, God in flesh. And I, I skipped the world. This means people from every nation and every class. This would not be just the Jewish people. Um, he gave to whoever would believe. 
Um, Jesus is perfectly suited to our needs as human beings. We have this, um, this I desire to know God and Jesus being God in the flesh shows us who God is. We also need a savior and he is that, that savior for us. The word believe here is the Greek word, uh, I'll spell it again, it's P-I-S-T-E-U-O, with long O again. And it is not hope, I hope that this is true, or wishful thinking, but it is a confident trust. Um, a story I read about a missionary that was living in a, a people group and he was trying to write down their language so that he could translate the Bible into their language. And he, he had been with them a while, but he had not found a word. They did not have a word for faith. Um, and he was trying to figure out how he would be able to communicate what faith was to them. And one day he was out on a hunting expedition with a few of the men and they were tired and they were coming back and there was some type of lounge chair. And one of the men said, oh, I'm gonna just stretch myself out on that chair. And he was like, that's it. That's what I'm gonna use for faith. It's stretching yourself out with confidence on something that you know is going to hold you up. Um, so it's a confident trust. What must we believe? First, we must believe the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. The truth about ourselves is that we are sinful. We are not perfect. The truth about God is that he is perfect. And because of that perfection, he cannot let sin slide. He can't just overlook it. Um, the problem with that is we now have a big debt of sin that we can't pay. We have no way to pay it off. Um, so he arranges that payment for us by sending his son. He loves us in spite of all that sin. As beautiful as 16, verse 16 is, um, it's only one side of the coin. Um, you know, it tells us that God, in these verses, that God's primary motivation in sending Jesus was love. And his primary purpose was to save. But the truth is not everybody believes. Um, so condemnation was not his, his purpose, but it's a result of not everyone believing. We learned several things about these verses from about that unbelief. First, that some refuse to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, maybe they, you know, they, they believe in God, but they don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, or maybe they don't even see their need for a savior for that matter. I think we also see from these verses that some people prefer their sinful lives. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. Um, and third, we see that some prefer the darkness. They hate the light. They don't wanna come out into the light. What this means for us is that we are loved. Um, God loved us and he loves you in your unloveliness. Um, Jesus came to save you. Um, if you've believed the truth about yourself and about God and looked to the cross in, uh, in faith for salvation, you have eternal life now. Does it just start when you die? Um, you had an application question about this week about that. I hope you took some time to ponder that and what that means to you now. 
If you haven't yet looked to the cross, uh, you're currently under condemnation now, um, just as you're experiencing, you're either experiencing eternal life now or under condemnation. You're not in a neutral position. And I think the application that that brings is that we should pray for those that we know that are lost and under condemnation. It should make us more motivated to pray and intercede for those. Okay, let's look at the final section, humility and exaltation. In 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of the John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So first I should point out that Jesus himself was not baptizing. Um, we're told this in chapter four, verse two, uh, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So just clearing that up a little bit, but there is baptism going on with Jesus' disciples. And John the Baptist's disciples are upset because the crowds are flocking to Jesus. He's getting more people and they're having less. So their problem is what? They're jealous or envious. Um, perhaps they're just sympathetic toward their leader and envious for him. Um, but maybe they're envious for themselves too. As his star fades, maybe theirs does a little bit as well. Either way, I think John's response is so great and such a good model for us. So I wanna point out several things. First of all and foremost, he recognized God's sovereignty, that nothing comes to any man except it's from the hand of God. At the same time, he wasn't lazy though. He didn't say, well, I just give up because I can never do it as well as Jesus can. Um, he keeps doing the work that God's given him to do. Um, second, John was self-aware. He knew who he was, uh, what his calling was, and he did not think more highly of himself than he should, as Romans 12, 3 tells us. He kept Christ first, third. Um, that helps keep your perspective. And fourth, he found joy in his role. And I love that he compares himself to the friend of the, the bridegroom. He's comparing himself to the best man. Um, Jenny Gould, sitting right here, 
<laughs> she's married to Tom, who was raised as a, a Jewish man, a Jew. He's raised as Jew. And uh, so I asked her to give me some information about Jewish weddings and what a best man would do because to give me some more uh, insight into this. And so I think he wrote like three pages of information. No, it was great. Um, a Jewish wedding would have three parts, a contract and ceremony and consummation. And the best man oversaw the contract and the signing of the contract. And he presides at the, the feast. Um, but one of his import, most important roles, I think that this is speaking to, um, was there would be a bridal chamber set up, I think in the bride's home. Um, and this is where consummation was gonna take place. Sometimes it was in, you know, like, I don't know, like a family room, or sometimes he said it would be in a separate room. But it was the best man's job to guard that, um, that room until he heard the bridegroom's voice. And, and Tom says that he even listened to make sure to, while the marriage was being consummated. That's, and so, I mean, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty more insight than I really asked for. <laughs> TMI. But, um, but yeah, yeah. But he has great joy in being in this role as best man. And then the second thing he's doing with this picture is equating Jesus to God. Um, because in the Old Testament, God is seen as the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. And here he's basically using that image for Jesus. And the fifth thing he did was accept Christ's glory as his ultimate goal. Uh, verse 30, he must increase, but I must increase. I must decrease. I suggested to my group today that we all get that as tattoos. I'm not really a tattoo person, but if I, if I was, I would probably get that in a place that um, hopefully would decrease over time and not increase. Um, but in verses 31 through 36, some believe that these next verses are commentary that John the writer uh, has and not, not that John the Baptist said. Um, but... I think they are, they do perfectly in this section um, because these are ways that Christ is superior. Um, one, Jesus is from heaven, while John, we are from earth. Second, Jesus has firsthand knowledge. Unlike Ender that I mentioned at the beginning, he's been in on all the planning. He has been in heaven, been toward his father from before the world was made. Um, everything he talks about are things he has personally seen and heard. Third, uh, these verses tell us that Jesus has been given an unlimited supply of the Spirit from his Father. Fourth, the Father's given everything into Jesus' hands. And fifth, salvation comes from believing in his name. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves. Um, if you believe that Jesus is Jehovah saves, then you have life eternal. It's also interesting to note that the opposite of belief in verse 36 is not disbelief, but disobedience, which kind of leads you to see that true belief will produce and include obedience. Now, there are some really great applications for us in these verses. Uh, first of all, we live in a country that's completely saturated with materialism. Don't know if you've noticed that. Um, our church is located in the wealthiest zip code in Tennessee. Many of us live in that zip code. 
And at least for material things, I, I would think it's definitely safe to say that all of us are at least tempted at one time or another to be envious of what someone else has. Um, if you've, have you ever said, well, must be nice to blah, 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 or it must be, you know, um, at least we've been guilt- tempted. And I would say that most of us probably are guilty of being envious of someone else. Maybe you're not envious of what they have in material possessions, but maybe you're envious of their gifts or um, wish your, their husband, your, your husband would treat you the way their husband did. Well, her husband got her a thought, whatever. Um, and I don't know why I think this, but I think that women are worse about this than men. I, I'm not sure that that's true, but I, I think it's because I know my own heart. Um, so if you find yourself having an issue with this, realize like John did, that God is sovereign and everything that that person has, has been given to them from God. Everything you have also has been given to you from God. So be thankful, be content with what you have. Um, pray for the person you're, you're envious of. Um, any person that you're not quite square with, I think praying for them is great. It's really difficult to have bad feelings toward a person that you're praying for daily. Um, Maybe you're not an envious one. Maybe you've got everything and you're proud and you're looking down on others. Keep your eyes on Christ as your standard. It's always easy to find somebody below you to make you feel better about yourself, but keeping your eyes on him um, reminds you of your true position. Uh, Keep doing the work God has given you to do. Even if you feel like other people could do this better than you or are having more success, keep doing the work that God has given you to do. Be joyful as you do the work that God has given you to do. Rejoice with others that have other roles and that are having success. Remember that Christ is ultimately who we wanna glorify, not ourselves. Ladies, we have a great need but we have been given a great gift and now it can be our joy to humble ourselves and exalt Christ. Let's go and do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us in all our unloveliness, that you saved us when we were utterly unable to save ourselves, Father. It's all your work and we thank you so much for that. May we decrease as you increase. In Jesus' name, amen.